My name is David, like Dana said, and uh, if you don't know me already, I work with the youth here at the church. Uh, we are going to jump into God's Word. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, but before we do that, uh, we just want to spend some time uh, praying uh, for Ukraine. Uh, as many of you know, you know there's some fighting, uh, war going on there right now, uh, and we want to pray for them, uh, we want to pray for the people there, and we want to pray for peace. Um, if you are interested or would like to uh, kind of uh, help support uh, some of the people who are there on the ground, some of the people who are uh, needing first aid, needing supplies, things like that, uh, the Mennonite Central Community, MCC, uh, they've been doing work in Ukraine for over 100 years now on the ground, doing relief work and effort. It started uh, just after the First World War, uh, and they've continued to do that. And so they're on the ground uh, now there. And so uh, if you'd like to support some of the things that are going on there from a, a Christian organization uh, doing work, there, uh, we're going to send out an email link um, in our weekly email uh, so that you can, if you're interested, uh, connect with that and support that. Uh, if you're not already on our, getting our weekly emails, you can talk to the Connect Desk and they will uh, sign you up for those so you can uh, receive that and, and all the other stuff we send out. So, uh, yeah, let's pray uh, uh, together. Father, we come to you uh, as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Uh, we come to you as the one who holds the hands. Uh, holds nations uh, in his hands. Uh, you are powerful, supreme, and your dominion is over all the earth. And so we know, uh, Lord, uh, that though the nations rage, uh, you are sovereign still. And we ask, uh, Father, uh, that you would be gracious and kind to bring peace in the midst of this war, in the midst of this conflict. Uh, Lord, we pray for the politicians. Uh, we, we pray for those uh, who are seeking their own worldly ambitions. We, we pray, Lord, that they would turn and instead their ambitions might be for you. Uh, we pray that you would give them wisdom in negotiating uh, peace, that there could be a quick and lasting peace in that region. We pray, too, for those who are on the ground, who are affected by the fighting, whose homes are lost, who are fleeing to other uh, countries and other places, who are separated from family. Uh, Lord, we know you see them and you care. Uh, you say that you uh, love to give justice and to care for the sojourner. And so we pray you would do that now. We pray you would care for those who do not have a home of their own. We pray you would provide food and support and medical needs for those. And may we be your hands and feet in the midst of that. We, we pray especially uh, for the church in Ukraine. Uh, we pray for those who call themselves believers both in Ukraine and in Russia, Lord, that in the midst of this, uh, Lord, that, that they would shine your light brightly. They would show uh, the comfort and the hope of the gospel, and they might serve those around them. Would you use this, Lord, this evil thing, to bring your kingdom on earth? We pray this for your glory, and in your name, amen. Uh, so like I said, we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 today. Uh, last week, we kind of jumped ahead to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to go back to chapter 4, verse 12 to 19. Uh, today, so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to there, chapter 4, verse 12. Uh, but as, you've been going, as we've been going through the letter of 1 Peter, you may have noticed that Peter talks a lot about suffering, a lot about persecution. And the question is really why? Why does he talk so much about this? Well, obviously there was persecution, there's suffering happening uh, to the church at this time, but what, why go on about it? Like, why does he spend so much of the time in this letter uh, devoted to this? Why does he care so much about how these people respond in the midst of this suffering and persecution? Well, I think the answer is that Peter knew uh, from Jesus' teaching and from his own experience that persecution is one of the primary reasons why people walk away from Jesus. Persecution is one of the primary reasons that people walk away from Jesus. The going gets tough, 
It's hard to be a Christian, and you don't really know if you want to continue on this path anymore. Uh, Jesus, when he gives the parable of the sower, it's the one with the four soils, he explains this. Uh, he says there's, there's, there's like a, a planter who goes out to, to plant. There's four soils. Uh, there's one, uh, the seed kind of falls on hard ground, and it's eaten up by the birds. There's another seed that lands on rocky soil. And this, the plant shoots up at first, but it doesn't really have roots, uh, so it withers and dies. Uh, the, the, the third one, uh, it, it's, it's sown among thorns. So it grows up, but the thorns and the weeds around it choke it out. And then there's lastly a good soil, a soil that produces fruit. And Jesus says, those that produce fruit are, are Christians who, who endure, who persevere in their faith to the very end of their life. But he says that there are those who are sown among weeds, they are the cares and riches and pleasures of life which choke out our faith. And he also says that there's a hard ground, there's a hard heart, a hard soil where people don't even want to hear the gospel. But what's interesting is that second soil, the rocky soil. This is what Jesus says about the rocky soil in Mark uh, chapter 4. He says, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. So they hear the gospel, they respond, they say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to have faith in, in Christ. But then he says, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So persecution comes and these people fall away from, from Jesus. It's too much pressure. It's too much on them to handle and so Peter knows it's critical how we respond in the midst of persecution. Right? Is our persecution going to drive us towards Christ or away from him? You see throughout church history in times of persecution, you have those two options. You have people who in the midst of inter- terrible, harsh persecution, they actually continue. They grow stronger in their faith. But you also see, on the other hand, those who walk away. Who say, this is too much, this is too hard. They either uh, deny Jesus entirely or they just live in such a way which no one really knows they're a Christian, not really following Christ. And the same is true today. Uh, we, we may not experience the same kinds of persecution which brothers and sisters across the world experience today or throughout history, but we do experience persecution. We, we do experience things where, you know, people look down on us because of certain biblical convictions we hold. Uh, you know, you may have experienced, I know many of you have experienced kind of tensions in your families because you're a Christian and people in your families don't really like that. They think you're crazy. They think you're weird. They think you're giving your money to something totally crazy. There's tension there. There's persecution. There's words that are said. There's, there's ideas and, and philosophies in your work, which you're feeling forced to accept. There's persecution in our world. And so the question isn't, uh, if we will encounter it. The question is, how are we going to respond when we do? And that's the question that I think First Peter f- chapter 4 answers for us. Uh, Peter is going to answer the question of how do we respond to persecution? Uh, are we going to respond in such a way in which we will turn our back on Christ? Or are we going to respond in such a way which we will actually cling closer to him? Uh, so what I want to do is I want to read the text uh, for us today, and then I want to give you what I think are Peter's three responses that we can have in persecution. Three responses uh, coming out of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Uh, let's read it together. He says, uh, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the right, and if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's God's word to us this morning. Uh, three things that I think we see, three responses in the midst of persecution and suffering. Uh, the first one is this. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. It's right there in verse uh, 12. Uh, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Right, and we should note here that the type of fiery trial, the type of suffering he's talking about is not just suffering uh, because we have a bad boss or because you know, things are hard in our life, someone's sick. Th- that kind of suffering exists. But the kind of suffering he's talking about here is specifically because of our allegiance to Christ. Uh, if you look in verse uh, 14 and 15, uh, it's, he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then he says, but if, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So he's saying, if, if, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're, you're blessed. But if you, if you suffer because you're a jerk, you know what? Then there's no blessing for that, right? If you, if you are suffering because you're doing evil, you're doing wrong, like that's not the kind of thing he's talking about. He's saying, if you're suffering for your allegiance to Jesus, then, then that's where the blessing comes. That's the kind of fiery trial Peter is talking about. And the fact that, <clears throat> excuse me, the fact that, that Peter has to tell them not, not to be surprised uh, means that their, their temptation there was probably to be surprised. They, they probably were surprised. They probably thought something strange was happening to them in the midst of this, this persecution. Or they, they seemed to have the wrong expectations of what following Jesus actually looked like. And if you know, uh, expectations are really important for how we, we go through things in life. If we have the, the wrong expectations about what's going to happen, uh, it, it can lead to some, some disappointments. Uh, for example, if I went home after this gathering and I said to my wife, Clarissa, I said, hey, do you want to go out later? And she's like, yeah, that'd be great. And in her mind, she's thinking, it has been so long since David has taken me out. We are going to go to Joey's. We're going to have calamari. It's going to be so great. We're going to eat all this awesome food. We'll have dessert. Maybe would, would he even take me out for dessert? This is going to be amazing. There's going to be no kids. It's going to be awesome. And then, you know, five o'clock rolls around and I say, okay, kids, get in the car. And she comes out of, out of our room and she's all dressed up nice. Her makeup's on. She's like, what? Wait, why, why are the kids going with us? I'm like, what do you mean? We're going out. We're going to McDonald's. It's going to be awesome. Expectations are important, right? And if we expect a life of following Jesus that is cozy, comfortable, easy, where everybody likes us, we're going to be very disappointed. Because that's not what a life of following Jesus looks like. We're going to start to feel that something strange is happening to us. We're going to start to feel like, hey, there's all these pressures of things in our culture or things at my workplace, my friends. I wonder if what I believe is really right. Because everybody seems to be getting upset at me for it. I wonder if I'm on the wrong side of history of this. I wonder if I need to change my beliefs. Maybe I should just step back. 
Maybe, maybe I don't need to stand firm on, on certain things. Maybe I can just retreat a little bit and it will all go away. But if you expect the fire trials, like what Peter says, then you know what you're signing up for. You know what following Jesus actually means. That's why Jesus, when he calls disciples, he tells them, count the cost of following me. In Luke 14, Jesus says this. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bearing your own cross, a call to die to yourself. He says, for, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether you have enough to complete it. If you're going to build something, you, you don't know how much it costs before you start. You're not going to just start. He says, otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And Jesus says, if, if you want to follow me, you need to, you need to count the cost. You need to know that, that there is actually a cost to following me. Don't just start. Don't just start on the race and then be like the, the thorny or the rocky soil where you don't have any root. No, count the cost. There will be a cost of following Jesus. It'll look different for each one of us. Sometimes it's, it's family things that come up. Uh, sometimes it's, it's things at work. Sometimes it's a loss of our prestige or our position or what others think of us. But we shouldn't be surprised. Because if you think about it, a, a professional athlete is not really surprised that there is an intense training regimen, right? A, a, a medical student is not surprised that there is a grueling clinical placement. Right? If you're a plumber, you're not surprised that you encounter some funky smells at work. It's what you signed up for. If we signed up for following Jesus, we should expect that persecution should come. Now, Paul says it like this in 2 Timothy 3. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This doesn't mean we go and we're looking for persecution. We're out there doing that, but we're not surprised when it comes. It means that we can, in the midst of it, stand firm and not step back. Peter's point here is that it's not strange to experience these because that's what Jesus experienced. We follow Jesus, right? It's what he experienced. He was persecuted. His disciples were persecuted. Throughout church history, God's people have been persecuted. We should expect it. It's not strange that we should. It's strange if we don't. So let's not be surprised when these things come. Because if we really believe that we follow Jesus, we follow a man who is mocked, insulted, spit on, thought the worst of by the, the elite members of his, his society, a guy who was betrayed by his closest friends, abandoned by them in his time of need, put up on a phony trial on false charges, slandered publicly, shamed as he hung on a cross, what do we think we were signing up for? Like, what, what, what do we think we were signing up for when we said, I followed Jesus, the guy on the cross? That's what we're signing up for. A life of following Christ. And if you aren't surprised, if you expect it, then you won't be shaken when it happens. Right? You won't feel that you have to retreat. You, you know that you stand firm in the midst of that persecution because you, you know this is... This is what following Jesus means. It means that, that that's, that's what to come. So that's our first response. Our first response is don't be surprised. The second response, though, that Peter gives us is interesting. 
The second response, he says, is that we are to rejoice. That we are to rejoice. Uh, If you look at verse 13 and 14, he says, uh, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Uh, So, he says we're supposed to rejoice in persecution, which seems odd, which seems hard. So it's good, though, that Peter, he doesn't just tell us, okay, rejoice in your persecution. He tells us why. He tells us why we can rejoice. And so three reasons, if you, if, again, if you're taking notes, three sub-points here of, of why we can actually rejoice uh, in the midst of persecution. The first reason is this, uh, because persecution purifies. Persecution purifies. Uh, if you saw in verse 12, it said, don't be surprised the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, to test you. There's a purpose in it that God has in it. It's not that this is punishment in any way. God has a purpose in this trial. It's to purify us, to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. So it's like gold. Uh, I have not done a lot of gold digging, uh, but apparently when you find gold wherever you find gold in the world, I don't know where you find it, it's, it's not just pure gold, right? It, it's combined with other rocks and other minerals, and you need to purify it if you want to have a, a pure gold. And so you, you take it and you heat it up to a hot, hot temperature, and then you add some chemicals and things, and it makes the impurities in the gold rise to the surface. And you scrape those off, and then you heat up the gold again, and you, you, you target some other different minerals, you make them rise to the surface, sweep them off. And you do that over and over again until the gold becomes purer and purer, more refined and refined. And that is what God is doing to us in our suffering. He heats us up, so to speak. He puts us in situations which are difficult and hard. And in the midst of that, he is, he's working on us. He's purifying us like a, a blacksmith that puts you into the, the heat of the furnace. And he takes you out so that he can carve you, shape you, mold you into a tool for his kingdom. God, God is working away at our pride. He's working away at our lack of trust in him in the midst of these times. As you might say, okay, well, that, that, I get it. Persecution, it purifies us, but why is that a reason to rejoice? Why should I rejoice that God's purifying me? Testing is hard. I, I don't know if I really like this idea. Why should I rejoice in it? Uh, I know that for me, there's been times where I kind of will jokingly say things like, oh yeah, you know what, I've been having a really tough time with my, my kids at home, but you know what, I know God's sanctifying me through it, so okay, you know, uh, sanctification, you know, it's happening, it's okay, it's good, but we don't, we're not excited about it really. It's like this thing we know we're supposed to say, uh, because, you know, yeah, God, God is, God's working in this, but I'm not really happy about it. Why do we say that? Why do we think that? I think the reason we think that is because we don't really want to be free from our sin. We, we actually love sin too much, and we love Jesus too little. We love our sin too much. We don't actually want it gone in our life. We want to hold on to those things which give us temporary earthly pleasure. Instead of seeing the goodness of being made into the image of Christ. I was reading through um, some letters of an old 18th century pastor, and as I was reading through some of the letters, uh, he wrote, uh, or his friend wrote a poem, and he included in one of his letters. Uh, The poem goes like this. It says, For teaching this, your name I bless, that holiness is happiness. Quite happy I shall never be, till I am quite 
conformed to thee. It was the second line that caught my attention. That holiness is happiness. I wonder how many of us believe that. Do we believe that holiness is happiness? That there is actually great joy in being made like Christ? That being, taking all the sin, the things that we actually, truly, if we think about it, we hate. It's the cancer that's growing in our heart and we can't get rid of it. And God's saying, I'll get rid of it. I'll take it out. I will purify you. We are, we are being made like Christ. And that is actually a reason to rejoice. Holiness is happiness. So being tested in the fire trials is not a burden. It's actually something we can rejoice in because we know that, that, that God, his gentle and kind hand is putting us into the furnace. We won't go there longer than we need to. The temperature won't be hotter than it needs for him to work his purpose in us. So that's the first reason that we can rejoice. Uh, we can rejoice because persecution purifies. Uh, we can also rejoice, secondly, because we are assured that we are following Christ. Uh, look at verse uh, 13 again. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That, so the purpose, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So the idea is rejoice now in the suffering because you know that. But the, the purpose is you'll be able to rejoice later. Why? Why will you be able to rejoice later when Jesus comes? Because you're in Christ. Your suffering right now proves that you belong to Jesus. That's why you can rejoice later. Verse 14 says the same thing. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Not because you're insulted, but because of what being insulted implies. That the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You're a Christian. Right? If you're insulted because of Jesus, it means you're actually following him. You're following in the way of Christ. Right? If you think about a war where you are advancing against an enemy, when the army is advancing against the enemy, who are they shooting at usually? They're not usually shooting at the civilians who are off on the side or whatever. They're shooting at the people who are advancing most quickly towards them. Right? They're shooting at the ones who are shooting them. Right? And so if we're advancing for the kingdom of God, if we are actually moving his kingdom forward, we should expect that bullets will be flying our way. We should expect that persecution should come because we're advancing God's kingdom. And Peter, in the midst of this, Peter is not writing this as some general sitting in a headquarters far away from the front lines of battle. Uh, Peter is writing this as a, a fellow soldier on the front lines. Peter knows what it is like to experience suffering for his faith. And he knows what it's like to rejoice in it. If, if you remember, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, uh, the, the early church has just exploded. Peter's given this great sermon. 3,000 people come to faith. And people are added day by day uh, to the church. And so the church in Jerusalem is growing and thriving. Uh, but there's opposition, of course, that comes. Uh, Peter and, and John, they go to the, the temple and they, they heal this man who's lame by the temple. And they do it in Jesus' name. And they start telling people about Jesus. The re religious rulers come and they're like, what are you doing? Stop talking about Jesus. Don't do that. And they're like, mm, we're going to do that. And so they're like, no, don't do it again. But they're like, okay, whatever. And they, they carry on their work. And a few days later, uh, we hear that all the apostles, so probably all 12 of them, it seems like, are gathered in the temple. They're preaching and teaching about Jesus, about his resurrection from the dead and the hope that people can have through faith. And uh, the religious leaders come. And they said, what are you doing? Stop it. They throw them in prison for the night. The next morning, they, they come and they send a messenger to go get them and, and bring them for trial. Uh, the messenger comes. The guards are still outside the prison door. And, and when they open the door, there's no one inside. What's happened? 
We don't know. But they get another messenger. And it's, the apostles are, are preaching in the temple again. And so they go and they round them up and they bring them again uh, to them. And they're like, stop talking about Jesus. Stop. We told you. Don't do that. And they're like, we're going to obey God, not men. And they're like, fine. Then we're going to beat you. Maybe that will teach you a lesson. And so they take the apostles and they give them what is probably the 39 lashes. So it's uh, where they would take a, a leather whip, they would remove your clothing from you, uh, and they would whip you 39 times across the front and across the, the back. Uh, it was a kind of, of beating that left scars for your whole life. Uh, you were often bleeding, and in some rare cases, people would even die. It was not a pretty thing that these men endured, that Peter endured. And yet, in the midst of that, as they, they leave the temple grounds, hobbling, bleeding, and sore. This is what Acts chapter 5 says about them. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Doesn't mean there wasn't real pain. Doesn't mean there wasn't real hardship in the midst of that. But it means in that moment, joy got the upper hand. It means in that moment, even though they're feeling that pain and sorrow, they're saying, well, this is the way of Christ. We're suffering for Jesus, our King and our Master. We will gladly follow him. There is joy because they belong to Christ and they know the reward that awaits them. In Matthew chapter 5, this is what Jesus encourages his disciples with. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we can rejoice because we are assured in our persecution that we are following Christ. Third reason. Third reason we can rejoice is because we see Jesus clearer. We see Jesus clearer again in verse 13, uh, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You share in Christ's sufferings. Why is that a reason to rejoice? Well, I think for many of us, we know uh, what the gospel is. We can tell you what it is. Uh, And when we hear the gospel explained that Jesus came and he died in our place for our sins to be forgiven, that we can have life with him forever through faith. uh, You know, when we hear the gospel, our hearts are often stirred. We're like, yes, that's, that's the Jesus I follow. I see what he's done on my behalf. We're excited for him. We want to worship him. And then then we leave here or wherever it is, and we go into our daily lives, which are fairly prosperous, fairly easy, not a lot of hard things going on, and we usually, those feelings kind of fade. We forget. We kind of go on with our life. We forget actually what Christ has done for us. But in the midst of persecution, when we go into our life and there's persecution and there's suffering for the name of Christ, not only is it a constant reminder that we belong to Christ. But that suffering gives us a a partial insight into what the sufferings of Christ were like. Let me explain with an illustration. Uh, Corrie Ten Boom is a name that many of you might know. Uh, Her and her sister Betsy uh, were Christian ladies uh, living in Holland during the time of the Second World War. Uh, Because of their Christian convictions, uh, the the Jews were being persecuted. They wanted to hide them, to keep them safe and care for them. So they took Jews and hid them in their house. You can read about it in uh, Corrie ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place, a great book. 
Uh, but unfortunately, uh, they were found out. The Jews were taken from them, and they themselves, uh, for hiding them, were taken to some work camps. They, they were moved around from work camp to work camp and eventually ended up in a concentration camp called Ravensbrück. And Ravensbrück was a, a terrible place. Uh, the guards were cruel. Uh, there was fleas everywhere. Uh, you would work uh, hard every day. People died simply from overwork. Uh, it was not a pretty place to be. And yet in the midst of that, uh, Corey says that the thing she hated most was Fridays. She hated Fridays. Because Fridays were medical examination day. And on medical examination day, the women of the camp uh, were forced to line up as they waited to enter the medical barracks. The doctor there would look in their mouth, check their hand, and send them on their way. But as they lined up, they were forced uh, to be naked. They would take off their their dresses, they'd throw them to the side, and they'd have to stand in a line uh, for what seemed like hours as they waited to be examined. And, and as they were, they weren't allowed to cover themselves in any way. They had to stand with their hands at their side, and guards would come and watch and grin. And she felt sick. She felt gross. She felt ashamed in that moment, being naked there, standing. She felt dehumanized, as you can imagine. That was the thing that she hated most about that camp. And yet, and yet one Friday, as she was standing there, she began to think about Christ and the cross. And she realized something that she had forgotten. And that was that Jesus, when he was on the cross, he hung naked. I know we don't usually think about that, right? He's usually very tastefully covered up. But Jesus would have hung naked on the cross. And, and she realized that. And suddenly, so she, she, she whispered over to her sister, Betsy. She said, Betsy, Jesus was naked too. They took his clothes too. And Betsy leaned over to her and she said, oh, Corey. And we never thanked him. We never thanked him. See, it was in that moment that they realized their own shame was the same type of shame Jesus experienced. And it led them to worship him and thank him. Because they realized, oh, that's what Christ did for me. That's what he did when he died. Just a, just a small piece, of course. But when, when Christ was on the cross for me, his suffering, I start to sense experientially what that's like. I start to see in my own life, not just up here, but in my life, in my heart, I start to see, oh, that's what it means that Christ did for me. When we experience insults and when we experience separation from family or, or friends, we, we start to sense the kinds of things that Jesus himself went through on our behalf. Right? But of course, it was way more than just the things that we experience, right? Because, I mean, we can be deserted by, by friends, maybe. But Jesus, on the cross, he was deserted by God. Right? We might feel the wrath of men. He felt the wrath of God. And, and Jesus, he didn't deserve any of it, right? He deserved worship and he got insults. He deserved a crown of glory and he got what? A crown of thorns. He deserved a coronation, but he got a cross. So in the midst of our suffering, which pales in comparison to what Jesus did, we can start to see, oh, that's what Christ did. Our hurt, our pain that we feel, it doesn't send us away from Christ. It sends us towards him because you say, that's what he did for me. That's how he suffered. Let me give you another practical example a guy named Richard Vermbrand. He was a, a Romanian pastor uh, during the time uh, the Soviet Union uh, was uh, occupying his country. And he, he experienced some intense persecution for his faith. 
of course, the Soviet Union uh, wanted to trample out any uh, remnant of Christianity there. He continued to preach the gospel, Richard did, and of course was persecuted for that. He was uh, taken one day as he was walking, thrown into the back of a car and taken to prison where he stayed for 14 years. Uh, his wife was in prison. Uh, many of his extended family ended up actually being murdered uh, during this time. It was, not a, it was not a great place to be a Christian. But in prison, uh, Richard experienced something more than just an ordinary prison stay. Uh, because the communist guards there, uh, they, they loved to torture people, especially Christians. And they, they took great pleasure in that. And so uh, they, they would torture these people just for the fun of it. And so they would take uh, hot irons and coals and they would start touching pe the, to people's body, burn them. Uh, they would put prisoners in, in an isolation cell and then purposely re release rats into the cell who would start to nibble at the prisoner. They'd have to fight them off. Uh, Richard even remembers that uh, there was a time where he was uh, put inside a, a freezer box. Uh, it was cold inside. They would shut the door, lock it, except for a small hole that was there where a doctor would be looking through. And, and as he began to, to freeze to death, they would wait for those signs that he was about to freeze to death and they would quickly open the door, let him out, they'd give him a blanket, thaw him out, and then they'd put him back in. And they did that over and over again. So that, that's the kind of suffering, that's the kind of persecution that he was experiencing for his faith in Jesus. And yet he says in the midst of that, the prisoners that he was with, all of them who were Christian, there was an incredible joy there. There were nights where they were just singing through the night, like Paul and Silas in the jail. He remembers one time where they were dancing around with joy in their prison cell. There was an incredible happiness there, even in the midst of that awful, awful place. And as he looked back and was writing his account, he, he asked the question, how was it that we were so happy? What was it about us that, that, that made us be able to rejoice even in that kind of situation? This was his answer. He said of the other prisoners and of himself, he said they had not only seen the suffering, they had seen the Savior. They had not only seen the suffering, they had seen the Savior. See, in the midst of their suffering, it actually allowed them to see their Savior clearer, better. They, they got a glimpse of, oh, this suffering, this pain is what Jesus experienced. Just a small part, because of course he, he took on the wrath of God. But they started to see, oh, this is what Jesus has done for me. It led them uh, not away from Christ, but to worship him more fully. They said, this is the Jesus that I worship. So in the midst of our persecution, when people utter false things against you, when they insult you for the name of Christ, uh, let that not drive you away from Christ. Let it drive you straight into the heart of Christ. Let, 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 it, let you see just how much Christ has done for you. Let your experience of suffering, let it drive you to worship him for the suffering he took for you. So we can rejoice because suffering allows us to see Jesus clearer. Last point. The third thing that Peter gives us as a response uh, to suffering uh, is that we are to trust God and do good. Trust God and do good. It comes from verse uh, 19. Uh, verse 19 uh, says this, uh, Therefore, uh, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So trust, trust your soul to a faithful creator and do good. The word uh, entrust there, uh, it's not the normal word uh, for trust. 
it's, a, it's a different type of thing. Uh, the word really means to uh, hand over or to commit to someone else. You're putting it in their responsibility. Right? It's the kind of thing when you, you entrust your money to the bank. You uh, maybe entrust your children to a babysitter. You put them in their hands. You might, if you have a team project going on, you might entrust or assign uh, a responsibility to someone else. Right? You've entrusted it to them. You put it in their hands. Peter says that's what we are to do with our souls. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, we're to hand over our souls to God and say, my soul is in your hands. That no matter what happens to me, I know that my soul is taken care of. That my soul is secure. That, that, that you will guard me. You will keep me safe until the day of salvation, no matter what happens to me in my body. Because here's the thing. It is in the, mercy, uh, the midst of persecution that we are most tempted to ask this question. If God really cares, why doesn't he stop it? If God really sees and he really cares about me in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of suffering, I'm doing for him, why doesn't it stop? Why does he just let it go on and on and on? Uh, in Romans 8, uh, Paul gives an answer uh, to this exact question that people are asking. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Paul asks the question, uh, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Right? So what are the things that Paul has in mind that could separate us from the love of Christ? What's he thinking of? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? He's saying, yeah, it feels like God doesn't love us anymore. Are, are these things going to separate us from God's love? Because it sure feels like it does. It sure feels like God doesn't care about me. And then he quotes Psalm 44 here, which is a psalm all about people crying out to God in the midst of their suffering, saying, God, don't you hear? Don't you see us? He says, as it is written, for your sake, God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We're being persecuted for you, God. We're here. Don't you see? Don't you love us? Why don't you do anything? Does that mean we're separated from God's love? Paul's answer in verse 37. No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Peter's point too. Entrust your soul to the faithful creator. Entrust your soul to the trustworthy one. The one who we can trust. He's faithful. And just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Trust your soul into the one who has dominion over all the earth because he created it. Entrust your soul to him. He will carry you through this trial. It will be difficult, but he will give you perseverance and he will save your soul. But you might say, how do you know? How do, we, how do I know for sure that God is faithful, that I can actually trust him in the midst of this? We know God is faithful because of the very last words Jesus spoke on the cross. Do you remember what they were? Jesus' last words on the cross were, Father, into your hands I commit, entrust, same Greek word, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Jesus, in his death, he entrusted his soul, his spirit to God. And God was faithful in raising him from the dead. And our hope is in that. 
Our hope is that no matter what happens to our bodies, our hope is that Jesus was raised from the dead, and so will we. That whatever happens in our life, famine, nakedness, sword, persecution, our hope is in the resurrection. We have a new body, a new heaven, and a new earth to look forward to. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love. And if we believe that, if we truly believe that nothing can actually hurt our souls, that they're secure, then we're freed up to do what Peter also says. Trust God and do good. To start to do good to those around us. Why? Because it doesn't matter what you do to me. It doesn't matter what you do to me. My hope is in God. So I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you. Even if you're the one persecuting me. I will, I will love you as Christ has loved me. That is what we are called to do. In fact, it's really what the whole book of 1 Peter is all about. If you had to summarize 1 Peter with one sentence, it would be this. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's his point of the book. He, he starts it off by saying, you know what? You have an inheritance. It's kept for you by God in heaven. And then therefore, live as a holy people in the midst of suffering. Do, do good. Care for others around you. Th- that's Peter's point. Your soul is secure. Trust God and live as his people. So as we close, uh, let me just ask one final question. Uh, When persecution comes, whether that's something you experience already now, I mean, you could could imagine the situation, you know the person, that because of your allegiance to Jesus, it's hard. Or perhaps it's something that, that will come, you know it will. When that persecution comes, how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? Are you going to run away from Christ? When the, when the pressure comes, are you going to step back because it's too much? Are you going to distance yourself slowly because it's easier to not just not talk about those things? It's easier to not make a big deal of the fact that I love Jesus. Are, are you going to draw away from Christ or, or are you going to go towards him? Are you going to let this persecution in your life drive you towards Christ? Because you expect it. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. And you can rejoice in it. And you know that your soul is secure. Will you let your persecution drive you to Christ? That's the question each one of us need to answer. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we praise you because we understand so little of who you are. Your grandeur and your greatness astound us. What Jesus has done on the cross blows our minds. Uh, The suffering that he went through, not just physical suffering, Lord, but the spiritual suffering he took on is far beyond anything we will ever know. And yet you've called us to be your people here. You've called us to follow you. And we know that means opposition. But Lord, we're often fearful. Give us courage. Give us boldness. Help us stand firm for you, for your sake and for your glory. May your name be known through us. May we not run not away from you, but run towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.